Oh yeah, I'm back. More cars than the car meet. More dirty hands than mud wrestling. And more bangs than November the 5th. It's another witty 924. Welcome back everyone. Yes, we are in a new series of Witty 924. So episode one, series four. Unbelievable, I know. I didn't even think I'd get to series four, but hey, that's how these things continue to roll on, I guess. But uh, let's start with a shout out to a very good podcast. If you haven't caught it before, it's called Porsche Called with Michael Bath and just firstly, a big thank you for having me on the show. If you didn't catch it, it was episode number 70 of the owner's stories that uh, Michael runs. And we got to talk about everything that was Witty 924. So yeah, the Porsches, how I got there, you know, the 924 and the 966, my love for Porsches over the years and ultimately my love for cars. So if you haven't listened to Michael's podcast, please get over there, check it out. Porsche called, it's one of the best out there in the scene of Porsches. So uh, big shout out to Michael and thanks for having me on the show. So what have we got coming up in Series 4? Well, the main aim is to continue talking about cars and my roller coaster ride with DIY mechanics on these types of older cars. Now, if you are a follower of YouTube, then I try to document a lot of the work that I do across all the different cars that I own on YouTube more really for helping others out that might be sort of facing some of the similar tasks that I go through but uh, equally just really it's a, a great platform to to share information around these types of fixes I've always been someone who's very eager to learn about how things work more of my engineering background than anything getting my hands dirty with more of the older cars has been a big interest to me and that's sort of where it all started with the 924 but equally I've started to move towards some of the modern classics now. So this series really is to spread the wings. Uh, again, continuing with the sort of Porsche feel, maybe a sprinkling of some other German makes in there, but equally getting some of my um, good friends and followers out there on the show to talk about their, I guess, trials and tribulations with the cars that they own, how they got to where they are today. So that is all to come in the show and the series throughout this year. So yeah, some great stuff lined up. With that, I wanted to just touch on, I guess, more of a deep dive into some of the cars that I've got at the moment. The reason being is I sort of started out this podcast with the type of deep dive, uh, I guess, analysis from working so much on the 924 so I wanted to sort of keep that trend throughout the episodes going forward of course we might have a sprinkling of other bits and pieces that uh, won't mean we go too deep but let's let's try and start with the best foot forward as they say <laughs> and uh, for today's episode I really want to get into the Audi TT Mark 1 uh, in particular this this car which was really an iconic car for Audi back in the late 90s. It sort of set a new direction for Audi, very much with styling and brought really many new customers towards the brand, really because it was so different. I mean, today, if you look at an Audi TT Mark 1, they are very much still of a modern feel and uh, they, they're very fitting for the title of modern classic because they really do almost look as 
as good as some of the cars that are produced new today. It's just, yeah, it was a fantastic bit of styling. You've heard me say this before on a previous episode, so I won't go into that too much. What I do want to turn a little bit more of a focus towards is if you are going to own one of these and you're going to do a lot of the work yourself, some of the areas that you might have to really get your hands dirty with and what sort of things to look out for because as as cars of this age 20 years old onwards it's not necessarily the big things that you expect to be the i guess the things to watch out for ultimately you want to make sure that you find a car that's had pretty good service history and has been well maintained but when you think about the cycles of hot, cold, hot, cold, winter, summer, winter, summer, you know, dry, rain, <laughs> wet, dry, all of this good stuff. It it does take its toll on the materials that are actually made, you know, make up the car. So from that perspective, things like plastics, rubber, um, suspension components that house a lot of rubber and uh, a lot of the piping work within the engine that, you know, relies on these these plastics to yeah hold things together direct airflows vacuums all of this great stuff it, it, it all becomes a bit of a pain in the ass to be honest <laughs> and uh, if you are in that sort of um, mindset of getting you know your hands dirty with these types of cars then uh, really I want to just share with you some of the steps that I went through and also some of the I guess pain that I experienced. Now, overall, when you're looking at an Audi TT, they're pretty solid cars. Okay, they're they're German made. They they come well prepared from factories. They're well coated underneath, all of that good stuff. So, you're not going to tend to find very much like my 924 of the cars of the 80s, 70s. The, those sort of rust spots that that tend to just start and then find their way through the car very quickly the cars of the sort of noughties were, were well made, you know, let this put that behind us. So you're going to get the typical uh, spotting of rust, maybe on the corners of some of the panels. Uh, again, depending if panels are made of certain materials, mainly steel, that's the stuff that tends to rust as we know, but overall they hold up pretty well. And if you're not too worried about cosmetics, then most of them out there are in pretty good shape if they've got the, the history to, to sort of back up what they've had done to them over the years. So let's talk about what I've gone through with my Audi TT and I'll go through all the areas which I consider weak spots on cars across the VW group because the, the TT shares many of its, I guess, underpinnings and parts uh, across VW, Audi, Seat, Skoda, they're very, very um, similar, if not some of the parts are identical. So let's just touch on some of those things as you look at a car that's sort of in the 20-year-old bracket, has decent history to support that it's it's been sort of looked after cosmetically, might not be on par, but what do you expect for a 20-year-old car? And now you're about to purchase one and you're going to start to look at some of the things that you might have to do, which I consider sort of the weak spots, specifically to the Audi TT. Now, I must also add that mine's the 180 brake horsepower, and if you've got a, a 225, which is the additional boost, there are some additional items around the engine bay that you, you might have to sort of fiddle around with. But overall, 
the similarities are there that you might have to explore to, to get some of these weaknesses addressed. So let's start with the engine because I think this is really one of the key parts. Most people get pretty scared, I guess, <laughs> of, of engines. You know, they don't want to get too fussy. Back in the day, certainly with the 924, you could be pretty comfortable tweaking around the engine, changing spark plugs, HT leads, you might do an oil change yourself, that sort of thing. There's probably you know, quite a lot of room to move around in there as well. You could sort of climb in with the engine with the 924. With the modern classics, they get packaged really well. So the first thing that is pretty daunting is that you have to remove a lot of items to get to anything. I say daunting, it's also bloody frustrating because you spend half your time taking things apart to get to the items that you actually want to, to change. So let's just um, talk about the engine specifically to the TT. The 1.8 turbo, this particular engine was used fundamentally across all of the VW group. I think every brand that I mentioned had some sort of version of the 1.8 turbo engine. It's a fabulous engine. Let's, let's not um, give it a kick in straight off the bat. Overall, very reliable. And if it's well maintained, it will quite easily do 200,000 miles plus. So the big ticket items, usually the uh, water pump and the timing belt. Yes, a belt, not a chain. So those things always very, very um, key to getting done, uh, along with the tension pulleys as well. Again, those those things you just got to make sure if you're looking for these things that they've been done regularly or if you're about to buy one that hasn't had it done for about five years or I, I would I'm going to say on the safe side, 50 to 60,000 miles, then you probably could negotiate some sort of, uh, I guess, uh, discount on the car or maybe even getting the, the seller to, to actually get it done for you. I think give or take that. It's somewhere between 500 and 750 quid for the water pump and timing and timing belt and pulleys. So again, it really depends on which garage you find to, to do it and whether or not they're prepared to do some sort of deal. But uh, that, that tends to be sort of ballparks. Once that's out the way, generally the engine is like I say, bulletproof. There's uh, quite a lot of piping around the engine that you've got to be really quite uh, critical of and, and aware of. Now, any type of splits across the piping, the hoses, will instantly affect your car. These cars were built, specifically the engines were built to address a lot of the emissions changes as we got into the noughties. So things like crankcase breathers, uh, positive crankcase ventilation you'll hear so PCV these things were primarily built into the engines to help with the emissions now when everything was new everything was awesome and it worked really well however 20 years on these things break down considerably and as I said with the cycles of the engine what you start to go through as a pain point is vacuum leaks now you can do pressure tests, you can do smoke tests, and you can start to find your way around to identify some of those challenges that you absolutely face. There's no doubt about it. Every single one of these cars go through it. So let's start with the vacuum leaks. The PCV valve is generally the place to start. These are well known for cracking along what they call the U-bend pipe that joins into the top of the oil filter. 
and a lot of vacuum leak there will immediately start having issues with your engine. You will have rough idles, you might experience drop in boost and so on. Now, that's not to say that that is the only place because these things are dotted all around the engine. There's piping everywhere. Generally, underneath the inlet manifold, there's a lot of different piping there that has vacuum-based um, components is the best way to, to describe it. On the 225, I believe there's extra vacuum piping on the 185 on the yeah the 180 which I've got or the 150 then you will have piping there but just not as much so I believe someone can keep me uh, true on that all of this piping will corrode uh, or break down or become brittle and you will get vacuum leaks there's there's just a matter of time before it happens so I've spent a, a painstakingly amount of time trying to identify any type of vacuum leaks because I had the classic issues of rough idle. Um, when you get into the sort of 4,000, 5,000 rev range, you will feel your engine sort of holding back almost, maybe a, 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 the odd stutter. That can can also point to, to vacuum leaks. It, it can also point to other things like call packs and so on, but this is the joys of these modern classics. You generally find yourself chasing tails a lot on on these things now it does come with i guess a buyer must have warning sign which is you must have one of the obd2 readers now there's a number out there i won't mention names you can get audi ones you can get aftermarket ones and, and all sorts there's some pretty decent ones out there that will allow you to plug your car in and try to identify some of the challenges that you might be facing when it comes to vacuum leaks in particular. So I did that on mine and it, it showed a pressure drop after the diverter valve. Now, again, could be some places, but generally the PCV is the place to start. When you're changing the PCV piping on the 180 and 150 specifically, you do have the option to change that piping without removing the inlet manifold. Many might disagree with that, but I did find a method to actually removing the PC valve piping, the hoses, without yeah getting my hands dirty and removing the inlet manifold. It saves a whole bunch of headaches without having to remove that because you then need to find gaskets. You might have to reprogram your throttle body because when you take that off and unplug it, it can cause a bit of fun and games with the yeah the ECU and stuff so you have to make sure you have an OBD2 meter and all of that system to to reprogram it again more of the uh, the techie community can keep me real on that but that's what I believe you have to go through so I found a route to doing that made a video videos doing quite well just helping people to to change that without having to remove everything else so PCV valve one then there's a host of other things. So there's piping to the brake boost. This is a common failure area. The piping itself, the way the fixings are done from factory, over time they split at the join. So if you are trying to find air leaks, look at where all the pipes join together and the particular fitments around which the, the hose clips onto because you'll see cracks and splits all along there just because over the time the tension uh, of the plastic gets very brittle with the heat that you know as I was saying the cycles of heat and cold heat and cold will 
continue to to break that down so check there check the brake boost make sure the pcv is uh up and running and then you know if you can perform pressure tests smoke tests and that will you know identify any further issues you might have with the vacuum system on these engines like i say they can be a bit of a pain when it comes to then changing other items that might have uh, a direct effect on your bad idle or loss of boost things like the n75 as it's called uh, solenoid which is like a t-junction type connector that sits just behind the math sensor and that should operate smoothly when you're accelerating through the rev range and if you're not sort of getting the smoothness that you expect and you feel like there's a i don't know it's almost like the engine isn't wanting to give you all the power then potentially the n75 is one of those issues to to look at equally the diverter valve Uh, diverter valve sometimes known as the wastegate you know you can get lots of different uh, aftermarket fixes on these but um if that spring inside is not working correctly then again it, it can mess with how the engine performs uh, throughout the red range so again these two things I, I have to say a lot of this stuff super cheap to change you know there's a lot of really good helpful um, aftermarket options around these you can spend a lot and you can go you know metal and exotic materials and all of that good stuff to make these things look super smart when you open you know your bonnet if that's your gig uh, but otherwise the general replacement of these you know you're probably looking between 10 pounds 20 pounds 30 pounds they're not big bank breakers so from that perspective if you're willing to do the work yourself these these things are, are pretty cheap and easy to to do other things that as i mentioned earlier on coil packs they have yeah notorious history of of sort of failing they can give all sorts of dodgy readings as they start to fail Uh, again bad idling hiccups stalling you know engine feeling like it's not giving it it's all so those are things to to look at along with spark plugs as i said these engines are pretty well tuned so you know having the right spark plugs really important so that really covers off most of the things around the engine as i say general maintenance leaks oh I should talk about leaks, actually. Not onions, but leaks. That's right. (laughs) They have a very weak spot on the rocker cover gasket. So the camshaft cover, they tend to leak oil from, well, guess all, all around, you know, front and back in the corners. Now, what's really important about this is getting a flashlight. If you are looking at a car, particularly getting that that cover off the the five valve cover that is stated which um is like the black cover on most of the vw group use those covers get that off because then you can see quite clearly any type of oil leaks that are coming from the top of the engine now generally most people will yeah they won't find them until you start getting maybe drops of oil on the driveway and by that time there's probably a pretty serious leak happening the the reason being is that the oil will be coming down the front and back onto the covers you know the the undercovers so the oil would have to build up on the undercovers 
before it then starts to drip out onto your driveway. So from that perspective, the leak is, is pretty substantial by then. Other telltale signs are generally sort of smell. So if the oil is leaking at the back of the engine, it, it no doubt will be falling onto the exhaust around the turbo area. So that will give you the smell of sort of burning oil, another telltale sign. But yeah, they're, they're very weak. For some reason, they, they tend to leak, I would say, anywhere from about 45,000 miles onwards. Most um, should have been changed now if you're looking at cars that are, are 20 years old. Um, when I bought mine, mine had all the symptoms of the leak. So, you know, these these were all good negotiating points, as they say. Uh, it's a really cheap, easy fix, right? Now, certainly with the 150s and the 180s, it generally is a pretty straightforward job. It's, a, it's an hour's job, um, and that's even for someone who's learning. You literally buy the gasket, which is 10 to 20 quid, very, very cheap. Comes in two parts. There's an outer piece, and then there's a center piece, which is where um, it, it stops the oil going down into the spark plug wells. So two two parts to it. To remove the the uh, the cover itself, it, it, it's something like 10 bolts. Very, very easy. And again, there's a couple of brackets you have to remove on the 180 just because uh, the, the cover won't come off. So again, just something to be aware of. I think on the 225 TT in particular, there's extra piping that you have to remove just to get the cover off. So maybe a little bit more effort there, but overall an easy job to do. It is a worthwhile job as well, because the last thing you want is oil leaking out, not just over your engine, but equally into parts that uh, shouldn't be receiving oil, including your driveway. So that is a, a must look at. It's a weak spot on all of those engines. So I recommend looking at that if you're buying Golfs or, you know, Seats and Skodas. Look at the top of the engines for um, any type of oil leak. The 1.8, 1.8 turbo engine particularly. So from the engine, we go to the suspension. The suspension, again, full of rubber when these things are new. Awesome, great, or, you know, as they should be. 20 years on, these things start to break down and corrode and become brittle and, and so on. So I had the classic uh, anti-roll bar uh, bushes that are gone. So you start to hear the, the knocks and bangs as you go over bumps and so on. Uh, equally, drop link rods, their other failure points which sit at the end of your anti-roll bars these all together you know super super cheap to change like a couple of quid honestly very very cheap and uh, generally an easy job a bit of advice on this one because there's a there's a lot of talk on this uh, across forums the original anti-roll bar for the front of an audi tt and i again i'll talk to the 150 and 180 i, I think it's slightly bigger on the 225 but very similar the rubber bushing sat over a plastic sleeve. I don't know why they had to use plastic. I mean, it, it, everything new looks fine and, and locks in and, and great, but yeah, you know, salt and bad weather and all of that good stuff will destroy ultimately all these parts. So there's a lot of discussion about changing anti-roll bar bushes on a lot of the forums. And the reason being is because of these plastic, uh, I guess, pieces that the, the bushing sit on, they, break and they snap off so you don't have anything for the bushes to to grip onto now the idea really is to change the whole bar nightmare job subframe out it, it's a big one and really you don't want to be doing that um, one because of money but two it's just for some rubber bushing 
So the idea here really is to downsize the bushing. And if you've got a 21 mil bar, you can go down to a 20 mil, potentially a 19 mil. Now that will grip the bar and the bracket that goes around the bushing will lock in and everything should be happy as Larry. Now, the other recommendation on this particular job as well is make sure you get your anti-roll bar lined up correctly. If you don't, then you will experience some rubbing and banging. And why? Because on the right hand side, you have your intercooler pipe, which is a metal pipe that obviously helps your turbo system. The drop link on the right hand side of your car will rub slightly on that unless you get it set up correctly. So make sure you offset, align properly, then tighten everything down because then you won't get any crazy knocking and scratching and all of that crazy stuff. The rest of the suspension, the control arms, the shocks, all of those again over time will need replacing. I've done rear shocks on mine, very easy. Front shocks tend to be a bit more painful just because of the way they're mounted to the hub and the way you have to separate them. But again, lots of penetrating fluid, big persuader, and you know you should be able to pry that apart. There is some really cool um, additional tips, like when you're trying to maybe change the top mounts for your front shocks. They tend to fail. They're made of solid rubber. The rubber over time cracks, so you you'll you'll experience firstly um, sort of a sloppiness as you accelerate and decelerate through the steering, and then secondly, you will no doubt start to hear knocking coming from the top part of your car. So that is the top mounts on your front shocks. Like I said, they're big like rubber hockey pucks are probably the best way to describe them. And they they crack around the center so that that's how they generally fail you can remove your suspension strut without removing it from the car to replace them so it means you need some spring compressors which you have to be super super careful with them get decent ones that's my my big top tip there do get decent spring compressors because the last thing you need is a spring firing off and you know they will break bones they're very very dangerous so make sure you compress the springs tightly and you can come in from the top of the strut to do that and once that's done you can pull the strut down and out make sure obviously you have the wheel off uh, and all of that good stuff and the car up on the jack stand and as you bring it out from under the wheel arch you then have access to changing the hockey puck. So as long as you've got the, the right tools for struts, you can remove that and then put new ones back on and then slot it all back together without having to yeah remove the strut from the dreaded uh, knuckle of uh, the drive, uh, yeah, well, the, the suspension knuckle. So that's the main things to be looking out for on the suspension. You, you'll get a feel for the car when you drive it, if it's solid, if it's pointing in the right direction as you turn the steering. Telltale signs if the steering's a bit sloppy is that maybe the tie rod ends aren't doing too good. So again, these are common failure points. Very easy to replace if you've got the right tools and a bit of, uh, I guess, penetrating fluid because they can be pretty corroded uh, over a period of time. But again, they're, they're a few quid, then they're, they're not big money. So it's well worth doing.
This leads me nicely onto the drive shafts. Now, again, depending on the history of the car, if the cars had drive shafts replaced, just double check the bolts that are holding on the drive shafts there. There seems to be, I wouldn't say masses of instances of this, but it's definitely out there and, and people talk about it in the various circles. And that is drive shaft bolts that become loose generally after they've been replaced and uh, this could be that they haven't been torqued down properly they haven't been used with loctite you know and, and maybe that's red or blue loctite depending on the um the strength but uh just double check i i've had that with mine i've i've actually it was just a bizarre coincidence that i happened to be looking in the engine bay at uh, a few bits of uh piping that i needed to just look at and I noticed down through the right-hand side, I could see the drive shaft and it looked like there was a bit of grease. And I was like, that's a bit strange. Why, why is that grease present? And then I realized that you can see the back of the drive shaft that uh, attaches to the engine. And you should be able to see the bolts clearly out the other end. So, you know, that they're straight through and tightened and I couldn't see that. So... Jacked the car up underneath, had a quick look, and one bolt had worked itself loose and and was like finger uh, tight. I mean, literally, it was almost wobbling. And then I just went around the rest, just turned the disc brake uh, when the car's jacked up, and the rest were, at, at best, just a hand tight, if 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 that, with my uh, with my ratchet. So very bizarre very bizarre and and this one hasn't had a a drive shaft change so it's just something to be aware of yeah just as you as you check around a car and as you look at a car and you get to know your car it's always worth every month or so just to look at these items just to make sure that they they're doing the job they should be doing and they're tightened down and so on so yeah that's um that's something which leads me also onto the cv boots the cv boots on these i tend to yeah, they don't tend to last very well for for whatever reason. I'm not sure if you if you are having new drive shafts put in, then obviously they'll come in the new boots. Everything should be pretty tight and and last for uh, uh, you know some time. If you're having to fit new boots on an existing shaft, then you've got two options. One, you can pop the the shaft out of the knuckle and you can put on a new boot. Uh, the other one is you can get um, boots that are split. You can fold them over, glue them. The glue's pretty solid. They they tend to last for about 12 months or so. So it's it's not forever, but they don't tend to fall off straight away. So make sure everything locks in and the glue's done, which is what I've done a few times. That being said, if you've got original drive shafts, you'll no doubt have corrosion around the edge, which the I guess the, the clip for the rubber booting has to sit. And if that's not perfectly dry, non-greasy surface, and if you can like wire brush that rust away, if you get anything that contaminates it, it will slip off. It, it's just a pain. Happened to me twice, two MOTs, both times it slipped off. You know, it's just a painful process to keep doing because it's an easy job. It's just painful to keep doing and doing, doing, and especially if the boot comes off you've got grease that's flying around everywhere from your cv joint so from that perspective yeah just just double check as you look around these cars that all the cv boots uh, front and back are good because they just can be painful to to sort out which leads on to the brakes the brakes themselves are pretty solid don't tend to have any 
big issues there. You might get the odd caliper that's sticking, but uh, overall, oh, I guess I guess there is one point actually. The the rotors themselves or the discs, they have a holding screw like many do. They tend to corrode and snap. So there is a video that I did right at the beginning of the ownership of the TT that um, when I took off the the right hand offside wheel, the holding screw was not present, but the thread of the holding screw was there. So it obviously snapped off due to corrosion. This is quite a common failure, and most people will simply use the lug nuts or the stud nuts of the wheel to hold the disc solid to the hub, which is fine. That's not, you know, the end of the world, but really you want to have a holding screw that does the job properly. That's what it was designed to do. That's how it left the factory. So that's really what you should do. Now, it's an easy job to fix, actually. If you've got some Healy coils, you can literally drill it out, rethread it, add the Healy coil, drop in a holding nut. I think it's an m12 if i remember rightly and jobs are good one. now just turning our attention to some of the interior parts these are common parts that will fail over time the particular i guess ones that are in the line of sight which you will see all the time is the heater controls there's secret menus in there that help you diagnose some of the things around your car there's some cool videos on that i won't get into that too much but uh, the heater control switches themselves tend to snap and break and fall off and then you're just left with sort of a light button square and and it's yeah it's a bit unsightly but it is what it is the buttons themselves cost about 20 30 quid they're, they're a little bit on the expensive side or you have to buy the whole unit which again can be sort of 50 60 quid it's just one of those things most people just let them fall off and carry on using them but you know if it's it's in the line of sight so just get it fixed as they say <laughs> uh, that said the seats some of the seat mechanisms can snap as well. They're little plastic uh, pieces on the side that tilt this, the seat forward for those getting into the back. They can basically fall off, yeah. They're, they're on both sides, so they're, they're both on the inside and the outside of the seat. So you just, just check for those because sometimes they come off and, yeah, again, it's a bit of a pain just to, to fit new ones. The mechanism to raise the seat up and down tend to tend to be pretty solid so no issues there falling back all good the the fit and finish of the cabin tends to be pretty solid as as expected with an audi so there's nothing really dire to to look out for you might get the odd uh, scuffing which is on the handles of the door but all in all everything should be solid and safe as they say so i think that really gives us the full picture of an audi tt mark one of course there will be other bits and pieces that I'm sure others have experienced, but for those that are really getting an introduction to the Audi TT Mark 1 and the things to sort of keep top of mind as you look at these cars, then hopefully that is a, a pretty substantial list just to keep you busy. So that brings us to the end of our first episode and the deep dive into the Audi TT Mark 1. I hope you've enjoyed some of the points that I've gone through, some of those areas that you should consider if you are thinking of a Mark 1 Audi TT. And today, in the current climate, the TT looks to be quite an interesting car to buy. And there's quite a lot of newsworthy suggestions out there that it could become more of a future classic than it currently is today, mainly because of those really great groundbreaking steps that the TT introduced when it arrived in the late 90s it also sort of 
aligns to the trend of cars of you know the 70s 80s have sort of had their you know their day in pricing and now the the cars of the 90s some of those are really starting to find their place ultimately we know that there's all the challenges with the economics of fuel and petrol that is what it is but for those looking for something that is relatively cheap to certainly purchase i mean you can get a, a pretty half decent tt mark one now from as little as four thousand pounds to maybe six seven thousand pounds these cars are good fun you know they really are as i said bucking the trend of the the modern classic and that their looks really do feel very modern in today's standard against many of the newer cars that are produced they have fantastic engines that if they are working correctly <laughs> some of those points that i touched on today they will outrun most things you know you're you're looking sort of the sub seven seconds so anywhere from the early sixes upwards depending on which model variant you have of the horsepower so 150 180 225 and there is a huge community of modders out there that really take these to the next level you know so some are running way over 250 brake horsepower and yeah they're smoking up the roads because obviously most of them uh, came with the four-wheel drive quattro system as well so that being said thanks very much for joining me today thanks for starting the new series with me and uh, many more to come with lots of new people new voices to join me on the show so as always please subscribe please follow please check out the youtube videos if you are interested in some of the fixes that i've done on the tt and you want to see how i did them then check them out at witty 924 on youtube thanks again for following and the next podcast will be along very soon Thank you.